for his glory. And as we saw last week and weeks before that, whenever we are quorum deo with God, we are not just face-to-face with God, but now we are sharing this awkward space with each other where we are also face-to-face with each other. Last week we saw how that provokes us to invest and build each other up. Today I think this passage shows us how to be angry with each other. How can we be angry as a church to the glory of God? Is that even possible? Let's look at Ephesians 4. We're going to walk through the passage we just read. We read it in its entirety, but we're going to step through it now. Look at Ephesians 4, verse 17. Paul is talking to a church not very different from ours. And he says this, Now, this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their own hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. It's interesting what Paul is doing right here. Now, when he says Gentile, he's not speaking in an ethnic sense, more of a, more of a moral sense. Okay, kind of like we, we might plug the word pagan in there. But what Paul is ultimately doing is he's holding up a before and after picture. This is what you guys used to look like. But you're not supposed to walk like that anymore. This is what you look like now. He's talking to a church that they remembered what their old life used to look like when they were a Gentile walking in the dark, when they were of calloused heart. And he's saying, now I'm having to remind you because you don't, you don't look like that anymore and, and you don't really have permission to go back and live like that anymore. That's virtually what's being said here. You see, formerly they had a futile mind, a useless mind. That's why you see the word there, futile. Not useless like it couldn't conjure up a poem or not useless like it couldn't build a business, but useless in the way that it had useless goals in life and would use futile strategies and methods of getting at very useless goals, right? They were also dark of mind, calloused of heart. They were alienated in a cosmos that was built by God. God builds this beautiful cosmos and they are in it, but they are separate from God. And they have sensuality, and they practice every form of it that they can get their hands on. And with all of this, this is how God found them. God found them, useless, dark, alone, calloused, and they weren't searching for him. They were discovered by him. That's an important part of this this whole passage. Let's go on in Ephesians 4.20. We're going to continue. But that is not the way you have learned Christ. Verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay, let's pause there because we see an odd phrase. It's not odd in the fact that it reads oddly, but it is the only time in the Bible it is ever found. In fact, to date, no one has ever found this phrase or this type of wording anywhere in pre-biblical Greek writings. And it is to learn a person. To learn a person. To learn Christ. It doesn't appear anywhere. It's unique. It's different. Because God gave us himself. We're not learning new laws. New rhythms, new methods, new behaviors. We're learning a person. 
And this is where Christianity, I mean, it's really where it cuts away from the pack of all the world religions and what all the world religions of the earth can pretend to give us. Because there are no mountain of laws to climb. There's no performance evaluation. There's no ladder to ascend. In fact, the beauty of the gospel is that he comes off of his holy mountain down to us. And that makes it wildly different. I think another separation point we see between Christianity and other world religions is how imperatives and indicatives touch each other. That shows up in this passage. Now, we've used those words before here, but I always try to define them every time we dust them off because it could get easy to get lost in big, you know, $5 words. But an imperative is just something that you do. An indicative is something that has been done for you, okay? Imperatives are things that you would do for God. An indicative is something that God has done for you. World religions will tell you that if you follow enough imperatives, things that you do for God, right, then you will finally achieve and get the indicative, something that he will do for you. You do first, he does second, in that order. But if the indicatives inform the imperatives, then we understand in Christianity that God has done something for mankind, and therefore we are free to do stuff with God. We are free to enjoy God, right? Now in this passage, it looks like we have imperatives to take off, to be renewed, to put on. But the language in these show us that it's not an imperative at all. These are indicatives. These are things that God has already done for the believer. God has, God has already taken off of a Christian an unrighteous life. God has already put on the righteousness of Christ. You wear the cloak of Christ. Your, your mind has already been renewed. I mean, you can't renew your own mind. This is something that God does for you. This is something that we see that is very beautiful. It's grace given to us because God has found us as roaming madmen, evil, alone, calloused, and intent on doing what we want to do. And yet he comes, introduces himself that we would know him, and he builds a new humanity. A new humanity. And what do we do? What do we bring to the table? We just receive it. We bring our need, and we receive this gift. And it's not the first time we see it. We see the same chassis in the book of Genesis. We'll put it up on the screen, but stay where you're at. In Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, what does Adam contribute to this master plan? Nothing. It's not like there was a whiteboard in operation and God the Father gets up there and scribbles this really good idea up there, but then the Holy Spirit's like, well, that's pretty good, but I've got a rendition. I'd like to at least contribute a little bit. And then Adam grabs the marker and goes up there and says, what? Nothing. He's not even alive. He's not a part of this. He just receives it. God breathes life into a big pile of dust. I mean, that is the before picture for Adam. Consider that. Adam has a before picture. It's a dustpan. We've all filled them. We know what a full dustpan looks like. It doesn't really contribute much to the big picture, does it? It doesn't really bring any value to bear upon us. But then God breathes, beautifully breathes, into a pile of ground-up, earthy, dusty creation, and out of it comes something that God calls very good and ends up being the apex of all creation. Likewise, on the same chassis fits our gospel. This points to the gospel that you and I celebrate because God finds us in our before 
not in a dustpan, but very lost. Not just pieces of inanimate creation, but very useless. And alone, and dark, and calloused. And God breathes his Holy Spirit into us, not to create something that is very good, but to recreate something in the image of his own son. That's how the garden touches the cross in this passage. He renews us. He does the work, takes off an old image. He puts Jesus on us, and that is our after picture. That is the after version. This is why you see Paul talking to Colossians in a very similar way, because it's a different church. It's not in Ephesus, but as a church, we go through some of the same things that a church in Boston or Nebraska would go through. So you're going to see some overlap in some things that Paul says to the different churches. To the church that is full of a bunch of Colossians, he says, do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Okay, so you know what's interesting? This is interesting. If we're talking about the idea of renewing the mind, I love seeing moments where science catches up to measure and discuss what the Bible has been stating for a really, really long time. You know what we call now, you'll see it in little um, news stories from here uh, from time to time called neuroplasticity, the ability for our neural networks and our neurons to remap and to kind of change shape depending on experiences that we encounter and how we can affect that to some degree or another. We're starting to see a little bit more of it now, but 70 years ago, there was this guy in Canada, his last name was Hebb, he was a neuropsychologist, and he wrote what was now referred to as Hebb's axiom. It's real simple when you think about it. It was earth-shaking back then, but Hebb's axiom says that each experience that you encounter, any experience, the smell of cotton candy, the feeling of shame the first time it comes, something that you see on a computer screen, Every single experience that you encounter, it embeds itself in thousands of neurons to make a net or a network of neurons, right? Hebb's axiom says that every time we repeat that experience, it makes the firing easier because it's embedded. That's the same reason it makes it harder to do what? Unwire it or rewire it, right? So the axiom goes like this, neurons that fire together wire together. It makes sense if you're trying to learn someone's name. That's when it works for us. You see a face, you have a conversation, you learn their name. That's an experience. You come back, you reinforce it. If you've known them for 10 years, you don't even have to think about their name, right? It's not so helpful in moments like sexual abuse, right? Whereas a kid, you might have associated something like a sexual experience with something like harm or dirtiness or shame, and then you go off and you carry that into a marriage. Not so helpful then. Here's the interesting thing. Renewing the mind, as Paul talks about it several times, in what science calls neuroplasticity, it's all talking about ways where we create healthy networks that fire together and wire together so that we behave differently and see differently. Here's the caveat on this. This is where I would say the Bible takes a sharp left turn. Originally, in your before picture, before Christ, on your own steam, you have nobility to renew your mind. None. I mean, you could quit smoking and stuff like that. I mean, you might pick something else up. You, you could quit smoking, you could quit cussing, quit stealing, you could, you could quit punching the wall even though you're angry inside, but you can't renew yourself into compassion, right? Without Jesus, it's impossible to renew your mind so that you don't feel the sting of shame 
or anger. Anger, right? I mean, remember, we have, without Christ, useless minds, dark minds, no Holy Spirit until Jesus introduces himself. This is why Paul says yet again to another group of believers, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, he says in the book of Romans. The renewal of your mind. Okay, let's go back to our text today in Ephesians 4. Look at verse 25. Therefore, Paul says, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. We see some pretty big movements in this. I mean, he says, speak truth, be angry, don't sin. And that's what jumps off the page. None of that is really easy. We actually looked at some of this last week. You see, Paul knows the power of anger. The guy who's writing this, he knows the power of anger because it fueled his before picture, his former life. But I mean, we know it too. I know what anger's like. We all know the power of anger. Saying something stupid at the wrong time for the wrong reason. Harboring a bitterness or a malice for 50 years. We can't even, we, we lost count at year two what we were even mad at. Slander, abuse. Wars. I mean, every story in this room has anger in it to some degree. Anger is in everyone's story. And what Paul is trying to make crystal clear is what was true in the last chapter of your life, the before picture, is not to be carried into the new chapter of your life. We don't have permission to throw a fit or seek revenge or throw a tantrum or be passive or be aggressive or be passive-aggressive or slander or hold malice. I mean, it's a very, very long list. And not only do we not have permission to act like we used to act, we actually have a clock on us so that when we are angry, we get it solved, we get it dealt with, we manage it quickly. Quickly. We don't let it fester. And this is important, too, because even good anger and we'll talk about what good anger is here in just a second, but even good anger has the potential to lead to problems like bitterness and a hard edge. Because there's nothing wrong with anger in and of itself, right? And if you're angry at the right things, and it is a righteous anger, but it doesn't move you or provoke you into motion, then that in turn will lead to bitterness. It will in turn lead to something that is not healthy. The best thing that a righteous anger can do is provoke us into motion, into movement immediately. Immediately. Nothing simple, just in anger. I mean, we see this in Christ's life. I mean, you don't need to turn there, but it's early in the book of John. I think it's chapter 2. We catch a picture of Jesus making a whip. <laughs> catch it now. 
He's not making a suggestion. He's not making a robe. He's not making a cake. He's making a whip, right? And he's carrying it in to provoke movement. He's flipping stuff over. He's taking things like money and kicking it all around. I'm pretty sure he might have been yelling a little bit. I'm sure he wasn't just mute. He wasn't whistling or singing or anything. He was, this was a very violent thing that we see. Blood vessels and spit coming out. He was angry, and yet he didn't sin. No sin. Can't find it. It was a righteous anger, a holy indignation. We see later on this moment of healing, a man that really needed healing, and the Pharisees are there. Jesus knows what they're thinking, and he is, the Bible says in Mark, angry. He's angry at their hard-heartedness. Jesus would have an indignation when people would suffer and their dignity was being removed, or the glory of God was, was getting assaulted, or, or someone's, someone else's glory was taking a ding. We would see we would see a righteous anger come over Christ, but it would provoke him into motion in such a way that God would be glorified. He didn't stomp around with a temper tantrum, just kind of smoldering for a long time and going on Facebook for 68 weeks talking about the same thing but not doing anything. That's not what we see with Christ. It was a righteous indignation that pressed him into motion. God is glorified. It's a righteous anger. Listen, when we drive the streets of our cities the cities that we work in, the cities that we play in, there are some things that should anger us and press us into movement, that provoke motion in us. Some things do more than others, right? I go trail running or running on a greenway, and I see litter there. That, that, the anger that that evokes in me is like, come on. That's about as angry as I get. Come on, you right? If I see some dog owner that left a big you know, landmine right there, then it's a little bit higher. It's like, are you serious? You couldn't find a stick or something or move it off? It gets a little higher, but it's not as high as like human trafficking. That's a hot spot, right? Or what opioid addiction is doing to families that were already broken. Families that were already broken. We're on the meth highway. We see abortion, sexual abuse is ripping right through communities. It's a long list. A healthy church, not just an organization, a website, but you, churches across town, the healthy church ought to have hot spots of indignation that press us into movement and motion. That would be healthy. I mean, believe it or not, you're called by God to be angry when you think about it. It's part of your calling as a missionary is to be an angry missionary. That's an anger that is appropriate. But anger can become inappropriate. That, we all know, the sinful angle of what anger can do. I mean, Aristotle, not like I collect all of his quotes or anything like that, but I think one of my favorite quotes from him is, anyone can become angry, he says, but to be angry with the right person to the right degree at the right time for the right purpose and in the right way, that is not easy. That is not easy, and I agree. Our afterlives... Lives after Christ has met and rescued us, they struggle with knowing what really is appropriate about anger. Sometimes we get angry, and we don't know if it's appropriate or not. Sometimes we know it's inappropriate, but we hide behind it, and we will come up with some reason why it's okay to be angry right now. But really, really, deep down inside, we know it's a sin, and we should be repenting for it. It's an object of repentance. You see, if we zoom out and just look at anger in and of itself, anger always occurs when glory has been dented or assaulted or shot at 
This is what Tremper Longman and Dan Allender wrote in a book called The Cry of the Soul. By the way, if you struggle with different emotions, like the, what, what's good about anger, what's bad about anger, or what's good about sadness, what's bad about sadness, if you struggle just with, a, with an emotional awareness of how you operate, this would be a good book to, to have on your shelf. But this is one of, the, one of the things that they say when it comes to anger. Anger is our response to an assault. Its intensity is usually in accord with the degree of perceived injustice, which is what we just saw. Though the assault need not be real or severe to draw forth an extreme response. That's why in, in moments of spilled milk, we flip out and lose our minds. That's what he's talking about. Further, if the assault blocks earnest desire or what we believe we must possess in order to be whole, then we burn with rage. It's true. It's so true. If you keep me from having what I want, when I want it, how I want it, you're taking something from me where I can't be whole, and I'll flip my lid. That's what anger is. That's what they're saying. So Paul, this is beautiful, Paul is writing to a church that is struggling to manage their anger, just like us. And so tempted to act like the old self. Why? Because it was easy to act like our old self. I mean, it's just easier to be angry like I used to be angry. That's just easier. And I know how to do it. I know how to do it. It's ingrained in me. You see, so often our anger is not because God's name and his fame and his glory has been taking an assault. It's because ours has. Ours has. We're the ones seeing that ripped away from us. Something is being held back from us. And then we get angry. And therefore it's inappropriate. It's inappropriate. In fact, if we were to continue down that stream, let's just do it for just a step. If we were to continue down that stream, we see a worse problem than even just anger. Anger's bad. We repent for being angry when it's sinful. That's true. But why are we being angry? It's because our glory is being attacked. Someone is throwing shade on us and our dignity. Someone is throwing a jab or denting our sense of glory. And you know why that is such a big deal? It's because our glory is primary instead of God's. We have lost fascination for God's. We have built up ours, and ours must be guarded. But here's the thing. Our glory is really hard or really easy to dent. It's easy to dent our glory. It's easy to take a swing. This is the deeper sin, that if God is not glorious to us, we have to build and require and guard our own glory. We have to fight for it. And when others assault and take what we have to have in order to be whole, then they just get the bird. Inappropriate anger, it's a sin, but the undercurrent is worse. Inappropriate anger is a sin, but the underlying unbelief is worse. It's even more sinister. That's why when Paul is saying, you must not act like the Gentiles, he's not just saying, stop being angry because they're all angry and you're not supposed to be angry because you're a Christian and you go to church now. What he's saying is, is their universe, they're in the middle of it. You, you've got a new middle. You orbit something much bigger. You have a glory center and it's not you anymore. You don't walk like you used to. It's different now. So what do we do? I mean, typically, what do we do? Let's take Jesus out for a moment. What do we do as humans without Jesus, without the gospel, when we see that we're angry? We look at a house with a bunch of holes in the wall. We have said something yet again to our spouse. We have done some damage because of our anger, and we want to change. We want to stop. What is the first thing we do? I will tell you the most used strategy that I see and have employed is just to ignore it. 
say it's not there. Because if you admit that you're angry, it kind of gives life to it, it feels like anyway. But what if you just bury it? That feels more proper. Just cover it on up. We bury it. It's the most used strategy. But then we feel guilty and ashamed because we still feel angry inside. You see, burying your anger, that's not helpful and it's not honest, yet we see Paul here saying, speak the truth. Speak the truth. Be honest with each other, but goodness gracious, be honest with yourself. Be honest. Speak the truth to each other. Be an honest people, an honest set of disciples. And this means uncovering our angers in healthy ways, not burying or covering them up. That's just a false route to peace. And it's just going to beget more anger, by the way, too, because whenever we bury our anger, let it slow cook in some crock pot, pretending that it's not even there, it will change shape. And some of these shapes are actually easier to hide when you think about it. I mean, have you ever seen someone just lost it? It's like one second, they're, they're totally fine. They're whistling, they're smiling, they're having a great day, and before you know it, they have gone volcanic. It's almost like there was an unending supply of lava, and all that needed to happen was a little breach, and then they just spew everywhere. It's the business end of being passive-aggressive. They finally have gone aggressive, right? Passive, 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 acting like it's not there, and then boom, out of nowhere, everyone's getting nuked. Everyone's just getting hosed with anger. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever done it? Whenever that happens, whether you've done it or whether you've seen it, that is anger that has gone unattended. Anger that's just not been dealt with. It's been, not been brought to the cross or put at Christ's feet. That's what, that's what you're seeing. What about over-assertiveness? We prize that in the workplace. Or sarcasm or mockery. I mean, that'll get you a show on HBO, right? You see how easy it is to hide behind some of these. But those are mal-shaped forms of anger. That's what anger has turned into something. Slander, that's another big one, right? Slander is a moment where you invite other people into your anger so that they can bring confirmation to your soul. But it's wildly addictive. Now they're angry. Now they're angry. Malice, bitterness, indifference. There's so many masks that you can put on anger in order to hide behind it. And we bury it because we don't want to deal with it. It's the leading reason we do this. We do this because ultimately, if you're like me, I'm just hoping a little bit inside that time will fix it. I'll be angry, act like I'm not, and then hope after three minutes, three weeks, three months, three years, that time will just kind of wash the anger away. But it doesn't work that way, does it? No. Time makes a cruddy Jesus. Not a really good savior when it comes to things like anger. Because time didn't die on a cross, didn't bleed out, didn't burst forth from a tomb. Time did not beat death and sin and chaos. Time did not do that. And by the way, if time works so well, then why are you still angry? <laughs> you're angry, come on. You're angry. You could tell yourself that you're not seething right now, but if you had to be close to that person again, or that political party or that company, or whatever wronged you, how quick would the emotions be right around the corner? They'd be right at hand, wouldn't they? You have a quick trigger. Furthermore, whenever we cover over and bury our unhealthy anger, we will start to see some cracks develop over time because not only can anger change shape, it can change our shape as well, right? So this is what I'm talking about. Whenever you don't manage well your anger to the glory of God, it will hinder your prayer and your intimacy with God. It will stop it cold. 
Because after all, you're not giving the Lord access to a piece of your life. It's really hard to be close to the Lord whenever you give him 99 rooms in your mansion except for that one. Or every time you go in to sit at the, at the feet of Christ, you're dragging this big elephant with you. That's overwhelming, and so we just don't do it. Some of the most just pervasively sinful anger people I know, they struggle with this intimacy, and it builds this frustration to throw on top of the whole mess. It's because they're angry, and they won't deal with it. They won't process it well. They're injured, they're assaulted, and a distance occurs between them and God, so it's a double blow. Listen, this is why I think Peter says, whenever he speaks in 1 Peter, when he's talking to husbands, and he says, hey, be peaceable and understanding with your spouse, or else it will hinder your prayers. I do believe this is pretty close to what he's talking about. If you're a donkey, and you're always angry, and she's always angry, and you're not building understanding in the home, and it's not a peaceable place, good luck in the prayer closet. Good luck building a level of intimacy when you have that much discord around you. I also think anger will hinder missional awareness, just our awareness of where the city needs people to be sent in God's name. This is just what a missionary is as a person that is sent by God, right? It's really difficult to be thoughtful and angry at the right things when we are so clogged up being angry with the wrong things. What I mean is it's hard to be angry at fatherless homes when we are just solidly ticked off all the time at whoever's in the Oval Office, whoever it is. It's just not enough emotional real estate to go around, to be broken over sexual abuse, and then also consumed with what someone said about you on Facebook. I mean, here's, here's the person that never existed. <laughs> the person that never existed is the one that is broken down, tearful, fasting on their face about at-risk youth, and then in that same moment blows up and has a temper tantrum because of the barista not making their latte fast enough. That person doesn't exist, right? Missional awareness. I think anger also hinders intimate relationships just in general that we have with each other. Why? Because you don't want to get burned again. Don't want to get burned again. Well, let's just face it. The only way to really keep ourselves from getting super duper 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 angry, the only way to keep that from happening is to create a big space around us where no one can get that close again. I mean, you can always get ticked off at taxes and it's social media, or the media, or your oil change place. There's an unending list of things, inanimate things, or groups that you can always get mad at, but the people that really do the most damage and cause the most anger are the ones that are the closest to you. That's where the deepest anger comes from, right? So what do we do? We can't bury it. We can't ignore it. We can't just pretend it's not there. How do we fix anger in us? The answer, which we've already kind of touched a couple times, is that God's glory would take its rightful place in our lives and in our fascination, removing our own self-glory, moving that out of the picture. God's glory taking its rightful place. Its rightful place. I mean, let's just look at a small sliver, just an angle, just a sliver of the gospel. The Bible says that it was for the joy set before Jesus that he accepted God's righteous anger against him. I mean, as long as we're talking about anger. Jesus absorbs righteous anger, aimed at him, but it was meant for you. And it was meant for me. 
And the result of this truth is now you and I are free to leave our unrighteous anger at the foot of that bloody cross. We're free to do it. We're free to do it. This is the doctrine called propitiation, what I'm describing right now. You know, we don't, we, we've hit this hard in the past. We don't have time to hit it super hard today. The idea behind propitiation is that wrath was absorbed by Jesus so that God's justice would be satisfied. That's the bottom line to it all, right? Okay, wrath was absorbed by Jesus. It didn't go around him in some mysterious way. It hit him, poured out to the very last drop what was meant for you and me so that God's justice would be satisfied. Now, this is highly controversial. <laughs> this is a powder keg, especially today, because there's a lot of people in the church, a lot of pastors, a lot of theologians, a lot of people outside of the church that don't like this view of God. To them, it engenders a vision of God where he is a stomping toddler at Walmart, screaming and fussing until somebody gives him a starburst, and then he's not angry anymore, right? And that's the view that some people have of God. But that's not exactly what's going on in this case. Let me remind you, God is unpolluted justice. Injustice will not survive around God in his kingdom. He is undiluted and unpolluted when it comes to justice being served. Yet, there is this immense capital offense that was committed from mankind. You see, the anger and the wrath will escalate when the crime escalates. You can go to academy today and steal some socks, right? Get in your car and snicker all the way home. If you get caught, what's the worst that's going to happen? You're going to pay a fine or something like that. It's not a whole lot of wrath that's going to fall on you for that. Shouldn't be anyway, right? What if you burn a home down or you traffic drugs, though? <laughs> that escalates things, right? From the government standpoint, more wrath is going to come. More anger is going to fall. And it's righteous for justice to be met. All right, for justice to be satisfied, more is emptied out. What if you destroy a sovereign king? Well, things just got real once you've done that. That is an immense capital offense. What if you sin against the holy, perfect creator of the universe, God himself? For justice to be met, now that's going to require a certain kind of sacrifice. Someone that is both fully God and fully human, right? So propitiation says Jesus, out of the joy before him, steps in between us and God and receives the wrath and the anger of God for God's glory, for our good, and he saw the, just the, what this would produce, and it caused joy in his heart. It was not a reluctant thing that he did. It's not something he did because he was obligated to do. Justice must be satisfied. The gospel is that Christ answers this wrath. What I love about the gospel is it's this beautiful place on the cross where both this justice that I'm talking about touches mercy. Mercy for you because you're getting something and I'm getting something that we do not deserve. But justice in the fact that the sentence has been met. Wrath has been emptied. Okay? God's anger was righteous. God's justice was satisfied. God's mercy was shown. You see, when you see pieces of the gospel like that, it should, at minimum, stop you. At minimum, avert your gaze. If God's glory before our eyes becomes big as it should be, it removes our own glory. It at least makes it feel inappropriate to build our own glory. You know, there is a really cool passage 
It'll be the last one we look at today. It's going to be in Isaiah 6. We'll put it up on the screen, and I'll read it to you. You don't have to turn to it. But there's a picture of everything I just described happening. And this has always been a helpful passage for me, especially on this topic, especially when it comes to anger. I'll just say it. Whenever it's a moment where I struggle with anger in a sinful way, just remembering this passage has been helpful. This is Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Okay, catch the imagery he's experiencing. High and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Okay, so... This is what's not happening here. Isaiah is seeing this majesty displayed. This is what's not happening. Isaiah is not watching all of this unfold, only to stop and say, oh yeah? Well, check this out, right? And reaches down and grabs a couple rocks and starts to juggle, you know? Or does his best Celine Dion impersonation or reaches deep down into his bag of talents to try to impress God with his, what, his glory? He's not prepared for this moment. He's doing everything he can not to collapse uh, just under the weight of glory. He's taking in all that his human faculties will allow him to take in without just dying. You know, I wonder when Isaiah leaves this moment to walk a planet where people are going to be taking shots at him, assaulting his dignity and his glory. I wonder if he returns jabs. I wonder if he throws a temper tantrum, seeing what he just saw. I wonder if he did that. I wonder how quickly he could have been provoked into throwing a fit. I wonder if passive aggressiveness was a solid problem in his life after seeing what he saw. I wonder. I don't know. This is what I do know. The gospel, bloody cross, empty tomb, today, the gospel communicates to the church a deeper majesty than what Isaiah saw in this moment. That sounds unbelievable, but hear it. We have more texture to see God clearly through the gospel than Isaiah did standing there seeing God himself. Remember, what Isaiah saw is on a different end of the cross. The cross hadn't come yet. He saw God. He saw a piece of God. He saw an aspect of God. We see God in Christ coming, living, dying, and living again. We have something different. What we have seen, I believe, rivals even what Isaiah found himself in the middle of. And this is another thing that it does. I believe the gospel that we see communicates that we are free to be wronged. <laughs> we're free to be wronged. We can be wronged and we can move forward, not because we're awesome, but because we're already satisfied in all the glory that we have before us. And guess what? It's not ours. Throw all the punches you want. It's not my own glory I'm trying to guard. You can assault as much as you want. You can throw shade all that you want. You can cut me off all that you want. It's not my glory I'm looking to preserve. I'm fascinated with another. I tell you what, go ahead and stand with me. We're going we're gonna to hop out of this sermon. But as you stand, what I want you to do is I want you to imagine where your deepest anger is as of today. 
the most raging pot of anger for you, what is it? What is in your mind? Where is your deepest anger? Don't try to explain it. Just what is it? Let me ask you a second question. Who is being assaulted? Whose glory is being maligned? What's being deemed? Is it righteous anger? Then is it moving you to action? Is it provoking you to motion in such a way that it glorifies God? And how is your view of God's majesty in the gospel? Are you still finding it easy to rage inside? Or can you get enough view of what happens in our atonement in the gospel to where it's exciting for you? Or is it just boring? What does your view of the gospel look like? And for those of you that struggle with a sinful form of anger and anger gone sideways and anger because something has tried to be taken away from you, something's threatened your wholeness, have you confessed that as a sin? Or are you just waiting for time to fix it? If apologies to other people are necessary, are you moving quickly to do that? That's why it says here to not let the sun go down. That's just a figure of speech. It just means be quick. Be fast about it. Don't let it fester. And just as a side note, whenever you forgive somebody and you've confessed something and you're working through an anger, know that you're going to need to keep doing that. You're going to need to keep doing that as you forgive somebody and watch the anger go down. Because we all know anger reprises itself. It'll come right back up, won't it, in a week? You'll forgive somebody and like a week later, it's like you never forgave them. When I meet with people that struggle with this, they will typically say something like, I've already forgiven that person. Luke, I already forgave that person because they know something's wrong with their life, but it can't be that because they already went through the motions of forgiving that person. I already forgave that person. That's like saying I already mowed the lawn. Congratulations. You're going to do it again next week though, right? You're going to keep mowing the lawn week after week after week. You're going to have to keep lacquering the gospel on. You're going to have to keep revisiting that moment, not that Isaiah saw, but that you see in what God has done for you and me in the cross in an empty tomb. That's what you're going to have to keep doing. You know what I love? I picked this up just from reading history. A lot of historians have noted that in certain churches, in the early church, when someone would be baptized, one of the things that the church would do is give them a new set of clothes, which was a big deal back then. Not such a big deal now. It might be awkward now for us to provide you with an outfit from Kohl's or something like that. But back then, that's what they did. Here's a new outfit. To do what? To illustrate that you are not like you used to be. Your after doesn't look like your before anymore. And that's beautiful. That's beautiful. So as we approach the table today, as we approach worship, and when I refer to the table, we have the elements, we have bread, and we have juice in the back. That's just receipt of what God has done for us that we could visit and celebrate and pray through together as families. That's something that God has given us as the church. And as we do this, I just want you to take a peek at what kind of anger is in your life, what it means, what it means about how you see him, yourself, and just know that the anger towards you has been answered and quenched. You only have peace now. That's what that broken bread and juice is a sign of. You only have peace now. There's no more anger coming to you. Listen, as a Christian, you'll, you'll get discipline, but not wrath. That's done. It's gone. To every last drop. 
And if you're in here and you don't love Jesus yet, maybe you're a searcher, maybe you're a critic, I wouldn't know your story, but you would easily say that you are far from Christ. Let me remind you of something that I've already said once. Justice has been satisfied or it has not been, okay? For those who are in Christ, justice has been satisfied, wrath has been poured on Jesus, it will not be poured out on his family. We are now co-heirs. But if you, if you attempt to live and die under your own righteousness, then there will be wrath waiting, and it will be righteous. The anger that will come, will be an, it will be a righteous anger. You've got to know that. So I would just submit to, submit to you that you would take yourself out of the middle of your universe and let God and enjoy God being the middle of your universe. Enjoy him being the fixture of your fascination. I'm going to pray for you. Father, I thank you for your Holy Spirit. And I pray, Father, of anything that I pray for today, I ask that your Holy Spirit would show us where we are still in the middle. Where we are still so central and fascinated with ourselves that if anyone tries to take anything from us, we flip out. We lose it. We're angry. So God, I just ask that in your goodness, your Holy Spirit would show us areas that we still say belongs to me, is about me, this is about my glory, it's about what I want. Father, you're so good to us. And as we sing and as we worship, as we take communion, as we write checks, as we high five and shake hands and say happy Father's Day, as we eat donuts, as we do the thing that we do as a church before we get in our cars and as before we go home, that we would have a moment or two or many moments where we are giving ourselves to you and sitting at your feet and saying, D deal with my anger. Change my view of you. I want to see you not like Isaiah. I want to see you differently, better than Isaiah. You've given me so much more to look at. So, Father, we love you. We thank you. We celebrate you. You're so kind and so good to us, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.